And the other thing that people really need to realize is that Christian Zionists who work for the ultimate redemption by working with supporting Israel and supporting the Jewish people, and especially working in Israel, are not engaged in missionizing, and they also have very little contact with the other group. So a lot of times, perhaps it will come in media where a missionizing group will cause a splash, where you want to, you know, present a Christian uh, message in Hebrew or something like that. And then people turn around and start speaking, understandably so, directly and criticizing Christian Zionist organizations. And we're saying we're largely different groups that have little to do with each other most of the time. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Many Jews have ambivalent feelings about Christian support for Israel. On the one hand, we're thrilled to have friends and supporters, but on the other hand, at what cost? Is Christian Zionism a ploy to support Israel and, in the process, convert unsuspecting Jews to Christianity? Is the missionizing impulse a key aspect of Christian Zionism? These questions became more acute earlier this year, in April, when a company called God TV launched a channel in Israel called Shalano TV on the hot cable system. The Times of Israel reported that a statement on the God TV website stated, quote, Today we made history. For the first time ever, a messianic television channel is broadcasting the gospel across Israel in the Hebrew language. We want every person in Israel to know, not a foreign messiah, but a Jewish one. His name is Yeshua, and he has not forgotten his people. Now, Shalano TV was pulled from Israeli cable in June, but the questions remain. What exactly do Christian Zionists really want? To answer this question, I spoke with John Anderson and with my close friend, Rabbi Pesach Wolicki. John Anderson, a Christian, comes from an evangelical background and was raised in Sweden, the United States, and Israel. John travels extensively in many different Christian as well as Jewish circles, and he currently studies at the Scandinavian School of Theology. He is an educator and creative director, and among his three published books is a Swedish study course on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. John is currently the Christian Relations Director at Cry for Zion, helping Christians understand their history with the Temple Mount and how it relates to biblical theology and the Jewish people. Rabbi Pesach Wolicki and I directed Yeshiva Yisode HaTorah together for 11 years, since leaving the world of Jewish education in 2015, Rabbi Wiliki has become a leading media voice in the field of Jewish-Christian relations. He speaks regularly to churches and Christian seminaries throughout North America, and he currently works as educator and consultant for the Outreach Department of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. John Anderson and Rabbi Pesach Wiliki, thank you very much for joining me today on The Orthodox Conundrum. Glad to be here. It's an honor to be here. So I want to start with you, John. You're the author of a study course about the Jewish roots of Christianity. You're involved in helping Christians appreciate the importance of the Temple Mount. You're obviously a prominent Christian Zionist. So as a believing Christian, how did you become involved in issues that seem to me to be central to Judaism rather than central to Christianity? So it has to do with my background. I mean, ultimately it goes back to the Bible. Christians share 75% of their Bible is, you know, um, identical to the Tanakh. So it goes back to that. But in my upbringing, um, my parents were Christian Zionists. So they were demonstrating in Sweden. I was born and raised there. They were demonstrating for uh, Soviet Jewry to be let out of the Soviet Union, to be allowed to return home and uh, things like that. I led a very active Christian life traveling the world. My father is a Christian minister, um, lecturing in all sorts of Christian streams. But um, my dad worked, uh, he moved to Israel in the late 90s, working with Christian media, reporting on Israel and that sort of thing. I worked together with my family uh, in Christian ministry, basically. And we held many, many tours to Israel, bringing Christians to Israel, showing them around, educational tours, that sort of thing. And after several years of being in Israel, I started studying the Bible from a Jewish perspective, and I absolutely fell in love with it. 
Um, what do you mean by studying the Bible from a Jewish perspective? I'm asking you, as you're a Christian, what does that mean to study it from a Jewish perspective as a Christian? Well, imagine giving a Christian uh, person a you know an art scroll chumash with commentary, and they've just never tried that perspective on the Bible before. Reading it from that sense, I fell in love with that, and I started to see not only that you start discovering. You know, as I discuss these things, I realize because of historic Christian anti-Semitism and a horrific history, there's a certain number of people who would be just very offended by me discussing these things. But and I can fully understand that. And Jews would be offended. You mean? Yeah, Jewish that people. Jewish people would be offended. I can understand that, and they should probably just skip this conversation. But, <laughs> but well, I hope they don't for the sake of my ratings. But I hear you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, for, for me, uh, also discovering of, you know, Jesus and his disciples and his followers, their Jewish background, their Jewish context, and that sort of thing, that had not been on my radar before, really in the same way. So I really had to grapple with, you know, what does Judaism actually teach? What do they believe? What are Christian caricatures of Judaism? And uh, now I'm a theology student studying this more from an academic level. And I also work for a Zionist organization in Jerusalem, primarily educating Christians about the history of the Temple Mount and on support for Israel in general. So that is kind of my progression, how I got involved with this. I'll come back to you in a minute, John. Rabbi Wulicki, how about you? What was the nature of your progression from being a Rosh Hashiva to working in Jewish-Christian dialogue and along with and alongside Christian Zionists? Well, my interest... I should say, interest or perspective on the Christian world and the, my desire to be involved in this bridge building and, and relationship building, my whole attitude about Christianity began long before my transition into this professionally. My transition into this professionally is only about five years ago. My first interaction with Christian Zionists actually was back in the 90s, long before I was a Rosh Yeshiva, even before I, was, uh, I got smicha, where I, I became a rabbi. I was involved with some political issues. I was a political activist. I was heavily involved as the executive director of the International Coalition for Missing Israeli Soldiers. If you remember back in the mid-90s, that was a big issue, raising awareness about Israeli MIAs. Sure. And at the time, that particular issue was viewed, it kind of fell between the cracks. The right-wingers didn't want to touch it because they didn't want any negotiations with any terrorists. And the left-wingers didn't want to discuss it because they didn't want to they didn't want it to get in the way of the peace process. This is after Oslo. This is just after Oslo, 94, 95, that period of time. Yeah, so I was living in Jerusalem, and I was involved with this organization, a bunch of Jewish activists, and we were trying to raise awareness, rallies, political pressure, and we were approached— by Christian Zionist organizations that were functioning in Jerusalem at the time, the International Christian Embassy under Jan Willem van der Hoven and Bridges for Peace. And they actually approached us at the time saying that they wanted to get involved. They liked the fact that it was a humanitarian issue because at the time Christian Zionism was much younger and less, less visible, less bold, and, and trying to gain the trust of the Jewish community at the time. And they were looking for issues that were neither right nor left. So we actually fit what they wanted very well. I was very hesitant. I'm the son of a rabbi, grew up entirely in the Orthodox Jewish community bubble. And I was just like, I don't want to deal with Christians. I want nothing to do with them. I wasn't sure what to do. When I met them, I realized that they were, these were very nice people. They're very sincere. Um, I came from a knowledgeable home, and I was always studying I remember I spoke to my father, who's a rabbi, and he was very skeptical. And he was just like, what do you want to deal with these people for? And as I started dealing with them, because I, I decided that we needed friends wherever we could find them. And we started and we actually did some joint events with them. I spoke at uh, a conference of Christian Zionists, uh, one of the first ones ever in D.C. that happened in 95. And I started saying to myself, you know something? This is not what I thought. And there's something happening here. And what? And I took that with me. I'm just to make a very long story short. I started looking at Jewish sources differently. My relationships with these Christians caused me to reread things or notice things that I hadn't noticed before. Passages in the Rambam and passages and even things in Jewish sources, like when I'm davening and I say Elenu, and we're talking about 
Jewish particularism in the first paragraph, and then in the second paragraph of Elena, we're talking about bringing the whole world to recognize God, the universalistic aspects of Judaism. And I don't mean that in a liberal sense. I mean that in the sense of everyone in the world gradually, step by step, getting closer and closer to a shared understanding of who God is, coupled with reading carefully the amb- the ambiguity over the definition of Christianity through the ages, according to Jewish sources, according to halachic authorities, started making me realize that there's something going on here that it also fed into, admittedly, it fed into my eschatological upbringing as a religious Zionist. I started saying, wait a second, if if we as religious Zionists, as modern Orthodox religious Zionists, see the modern state of Israel as the beginning of the redemptive process and the ingathering of the people of Israel, as this gradual process that we're meant to be involved in. And that's really the essence of religious Zionism, that we accept that it's gradual and that we accept that we're supposed to be involved. Those are two things that Orthodox Jews who are not Zionists tend to disagree with. They don't think we should be involved and they don't think it's gradual. They're waiting for a sudden flip of the switch, Messiah comes. But we believe that it's gradual and that we're supposed to be involved. And I said, okay, the redemption isn't just about the Jews come back to Israel, we build the Beit HaMikdash and it's all over. The redemption is about the whole world recognizing God. And therefore, if the gradual mm-hmm. process of redemption has begun, shouldn't we also be embracing the gradual steps of the nations of the world coming closer to us in all of its imperfection and embryonic beginnings? Shouldn't we embrace that and get involved in it? And that's really where I come to this. It was on my mind all the years I was a Rosh Yeshiva. It never left my mind. I want to ask you ask you both actually a question about this then. I'll start with you, Robert Willicky, and then I'll move on to John, because I wonder if you agree. Please define, in just a few sentences, what is Christian Zionism, according to you? According to me? Okay, so as a, yeah, I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider who's also a bit of an insider. Here's my definition of Christian Zionism. Christian Zionists see the state of Israel exactly the way Jewish religious Zionists see the state of Israel, in the following sense. The state of Israel is the ingathering of the people of Israel at the last generation, Hadorah Acharon, as it says in, in, in Sefer Devarim, as it says in Deuteronomy, after being exiled to the four corners of the earth, what's described there, the Jewish people will be scattered to the four corners of the earth, they will eventually be ingathered and become more numerous and more prosperous than their ancestors, and that is the critical opening stage of what comes next, if you look in Yeshaya and Yirmi and Yechezkel, and that Christians see the state of Israel exactly that way. They see it the same way religious Zionists see it, and therefore it is a biblical imperative as Christians to celebrate the state of Israel, to support the state of Israel, to see it as the epicenter of the ultimate kingdom of God on earth. That's how I understand Christian Zionism. John, do you agree with that definition, or is yours slightly in some nuances different? You know, it's great to think about these concepts right now. I don't spend so much time academically. You know, I have friends who are just, uh, you know, they dive into Christian Zionism as a research topic. Um, I practice it, you could say. So, but if, as I think about it, I think in the kind of general political PC sort of sense, then Christian Zionism is just the belief that the Jewish people have the right to their own homeland. Spiritually or politically? Uh, Politically, they would say then too, but of course spiritually. Uh, I don't think there's a division there, really. I would say that that's part. It used to originally be called Christian Restorationism. And Zionism, the political aspect of it, um, plays a part in that. But that is where I would largely agree with Rabbi Veliki's statements about what it's about. Christians who believed in the restoration of Israel, the ingathering of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, that God would had promised to do that, and he would do that. So I think for people to understand it, we'd really just have to do a short, brief history of Christian Zionism, and I'd be happy to do that, but I don't know if you want to do that now. Scott, I would like to ask John a question about Christian Zionism in light of this little exchange here, and see if he agrees with me. I have often said John, when I speak to Christian audiences, and I get a lot of nods, you know, when you get a lot of nods when you're speaking, or with Christians, they often say amen. 
see, with Jews, they don't say amen or not. They right. just say, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. Well, exactly. Well, that's the stereotype. When you speak to a Jewish crowd, if no one says anything, they probably agree with you because they speak up when they disagree. <laughs> when you speak to a Christian crowd, it's the opposite. When they agree with you, they say amen. If no one says a word, there's probably a problem with what you said because they're so polite they won't say a word. Uh, Very true. <laughs> oh, thank you, John. But here's what I often say publicly. I say Christian Zionism is not fundamentally a political position. It is a theological position, a biblical position, that manifests itself. One of the manifestations, one of the main visible manifestations, is political activity. But it's not fundamentally a political position. And here's where my real question to you is, there are certain fundamentals that have been fundamentals for centuries about how Christians think about the Jewish people and Jews theologically that are called into question by Christian Zionism. And that's really embedded in my statement that Christian Zionism is really a theological position that's being taken. Yes, I think you're right. The other aspect of that is that, you know, we get blamed by uh, secular society for saying, you're just Bible thumpers. Um, you believe this irrational faith position for a political situation in the Middle East. And so I think really it's also con connected to the concept that God is the just judge of all the earth, the guide of history. Whatever God does, he will do rightly, even though it's messy uh, with imperfect people. The situation with Israel politically and so on is a just one. It's not just a, uh, you know, our religion is correct. We have these fundamental beliefs. Therefore, we support this. We believe it's also fundamentally just. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess that's what I'm kind of pushing back on saying it's only a theological position or primarily. I think the motivating factor, yes. So I will give a brief historical thing because a lot of times in media now you'll see especially in the trump era a lot of op-eds coming out um and this happens periodically that christian zionism is born by the guilt of the holocaust it started after the holocaust and christians felt so guilty that they just felt they had to support uh, the jewish peoples and the jewish refugees and their reestablishment to israel i would say that is a major misunderstanding of christian zionism it has its roots after the Protestant Reformation, people got the Bible into their own hands and they started seeing, first of all, like Puritans in England in the 1600s started to notice that the Christian sources really start painting a more positive picture of the Jewish future. And then by the time you get to the 1800s, you have Christians saying the biblical prophets talk a lot about the ingathering of the Jewish people and we don't accept that this is all just allegory that the church theologically had explained away with replacement theology. This has got to be serious. And then you start getting people like uh, William Blackstone, uh, Pastor Blackstone in America in the 1800s. He wrote a bestseller about this, and he connected it to the justice aspect. He started arguing who gave the, the Turkish Empire the right to dominate all these nationalist you know, nations in the area, shouldn't they have their independence and their freedom like we do? And look at the Jewish suffering in Eastern Europe and Russia. There should be some justice here, as well as the prophetic aspect. And he actually made a petition that was, uh, believe it or not, signed by basically the New York Times, the Washington Post, all like hundreds of leading figures in America at the time. And it eventually influenced American politics to agree with the Balfour Declaration, Christian Zionism in the UK. And a lot of times Christian Zionism even preceded Jewish uh, Zionism and inspired it. And the anthem of the State of Israel today, for example, is a Jewish poem, but it was written and dedicated to a Christian Zionist. The hmm. IDF, um, you know, Wingate, I am right next to Wingate Circle here in Jerusalem. And he is called the father of the IDF. And Ben-Gurion said if he had not died in World War II, he may have been the first chief of staff of the IDF. He's an avowed Christian Zionist. So there's that aspect. And the motivation to just say that it's born out of guilt of the Christian, you know, of Christians after the Holocaust, I think that it's more so better to say that it is redemptive. We believe in this gradual redemption and working on it together. Just like Rabbi Baliki was saying, it's also out of gratitude 
that we're grateful for the Jewish people giving us the Bible, giving all this light to the world for even giving us what we believe to be the Messiah, for the synagogue worship context, everything we have from the Jewish people. So there's gratitude and the justice element, and there is the guilt aspect, but I think it plays a different role. But if 1948 had not happened, I think Christians would have sadly moved on from the guilt of the Holocaust. What really shook the Christian world, besides all the Christians who were already on board with restoration of the Jewish people, what shook the rest of the Christian world was 1948. I mean, Luther in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s had said the proof that Judaism is wrong, we're right, is that the Jewish people don't have sovereignty in their land. If they were to get it back, you know, then we would jump on board, help them build their temple, whatever. But since they don't, and it's been 1,500 years, God's never going to do it. Forget that. So 1948, the restoration and the miracle of the modern state of Israel is the, you know, the motivating factor in a lot of Christian Zionism. I want to follow up on that, John, because what you're saying sounds, if I understand you properly, that you don't feel that what you and other Christian Zionists are doing now and your theological stance towards Israel is a break from anything going on in the Protestant world before there was a state of Israel. You're saying it's a continuation of this stream of Protestant theology, if, I, if I'm repeating what you're saying correctly. Yeah. And then in that case, then how would a Christian deal with anti-Semitism? In other words, how do those coexist with people believing in restoration theology, the prophecies to the Jews are still true? I'm speaking of before 1948. Those prophecies are still real. God still has a special relationship with the Jewish people. And yet there was not only in the Catholic world, but also in the Protestant world. I know it's varied, but it exists clearly in the whole Christian world. Tremendous anti-Semitism. How can those coexist? I don't think they can or should Christian anti-Semitism is very real. Now, Christian Zionists, let me be clear, who look back at church history, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or otherwise, and see people who actually persecuted and murdered Jews, they believe that they're burning in hell. Like, that is their view, and, the, and that they could commit, you know, Chilul Hashem, they are, they are um, blaspheming the name of God. At the same time, they realize we have some sort of historical debt to Christian history. We didn't get here from nowhere. So there's that aspect of it. And I think it confuses, perhaps it confuses both Christians and Jews when this happens, and this happens a lot, is that Christian groups will come and they'll say, we want to make teshuva, we want to repent to the Jewish people for our history. And then a Jewish person might respond like the former chief rabbi Lau of Israel might say, I have no mandate from, you know, dead friends in the Holocaust to forgive you for anything. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it's like, you know, I don't know how that relationship will work out. And I, I'd love to have Jewish perspective on that. At the same time, it's also a process. So like I said, in the, after the Protestant Reformation, Christians got a hold of the Bible and could read it for themselves it started a long process and that process is continuing where Christians are more and more identifying more and more nuances of anti-Semitism, expunging it more from where it could be wrong theologically or biblically or, or culturally. That's still an ongoing process. My experience, I'm happy that you said that Christian Zionism is not born of guilt for the Holocaust. It's not the main motivating factor. At the same time, Christian Zionists that I know, that I interact with, are very cognizant of anti-Semitism and are very much at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism in the Christian world, but it's not coming from a place of guilt. From what I see, it's much more anger at old Christianity for being anti-Semitic and wanting to break from it. So Christians will often say things like, those weren't real Christians. Now, to Jewish ears, that sounds very insensitive because it's like, it sounds like you're, you're trying to not take responsibility for it, but what they really mean is, I am distancing myself. That is a wrong turn that Christianity took, and Christianity is, is correctly on this path that we're on now. That's what they mean. I just wanted to share that perspective. Yeah, definitely. John, I want to ask you another question on a somewhat different topic within Christian Zionism. Bluntly, 
many Jews, maybe most Jews, are quite suspicious of people like you. Do you have some sort of hidden agenda? Are you interested in Jews becoming either Christians or perhaps just believers in Jesus, even while maintaining their Jewishness? And while Jews often appreciate the support of Christian Zionists, they wonder what is going on behind it. Is it just an attempt to get all the Jews in Israel in order to allow the rapture to take place, or other sorts of theological reasons that Christians have which Jews would disagree with and be insulted by? How would you answer that charge or question? I think that, first of all, you have the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which we call historical churches, and then the more Protestant variations, which is famously tens of thousands of streams. The Protestant position and the Protestant reflex, I would say, is we don't have a Shulchan Aruch, we don't have canon law. Basically, whoever makes the best biblical argument from the sources is right and may the best man win. So hmm. you can constantly influence a Protestant to keep looking at the sources and say who is more correct. So we're always in a state of trying to refine our beliefs to be more correct. So that that will change. But as far as our like motivation, I think there's so much overlap with what Rabbi uh, Waliki was saying with this gradual redemption that Israel is the first flowering of the redemption. It's a process and we're involved with it and we're working with it and for it. We may have different views of the ultimate, what's called in theology, eschatological end, like the final end of all things. But the process and our view even of the, of the great final redemption is becoming more and more similar. Christians and Jews are finding so much more common ground, and especially on the work of working towards it. So we have so many common goals, and then the final you know, great redemption is not up to us. It's both of us believing, Jews believing one thing, Christians believing one thing, but that neither of them, you know, they will be an ultimate act of God. And you don't need to be afraid of what my motivations are if you don't believe what I believe anyway. It's not like I will in any sense pull out a sword or a gun or something and force this to happen, you know? Yeah, but John, it sounds to me, and I'm on your side, it sounds to me like you're dodging the question that Scott asked. Because the fact okay. is... We're not only know, talking about the end times, we're also talking about today. Are people trying to convert Jews? It's a practical question, not only about eschatological concerns. Right. So, all that said, the major Christian Zionist organizations are split from what would be called the missionary stream. And the major Christian Zionist organizations in Jerusalem, for example, all have stated policies that this is not our goal to missionize here. If you look at QFI or something like that in America, a large Christian Zionist organization, that is not their goal either. It is clearly not to missionize. This is not our concern. And they are a lot in conflict with people who do want to missionize in the Christian community. And of course, we all share a belief in Jesus. And so we're not going to betray each other on that point. But we do have conflicts within the Christian community. And even, I would say, within what's called the Messianic community, which is a large and diverse group, or, or it's, a, it's a largely diverse group. It's not large, but... It's very diverse. There's a split even in that one between what's called a post-missionary position. In other words, those who are interested in the Torah because it's eternal, they view it as eternally relevant, and those who would like to use it just as a missionary tactic to attract Jews. And the other thing that people really need to realize is that Christian Zionists who work for the ultimate redemption by working with supporting Israel and supporting the Jewish people, and especially working in Israel, are not engaged in missionizing, and they also have very little contact with the other group. So a lot of times, perhaps it will come in media where a missionizing group will cause a splash or some sort of media sensation. Like the God TV thing that happened a few months ago. Right, Shilano TV where you want to, you know, present a Christian uh, message in Hebrew or something like that. And then people turn around and start speaking, understandably so, directly and criticizing Christian Zionist organizations. 
And we're saying we're largely different groups that have little to do with each other most of the time. But in that case, John, I want to ask from the other perspective. And this is a loaded question. The answer might be that I'm working on a false assumption. But in that case, those groups that do not missionize, how do they justify not missionizing? If they believe that the truth is with them and they believe the Christianity or even Jews who believe in Jesus, I'm trying to walk that line finally, even though from a Jewish perspective, it's basically the same thing. If a person's a Messianic Jew, an Orthodox Jew would say, in practice, he's a Christian. I listened to something which you once said, which it seemed to me made a distinction between a Jew who converts to Christianity and a Jew who remains Jewish but believes in Christianity, a distinction we might not make. That's why I'm, I'm saying it like that, but we can get to that afterwards. How can someone like you justify not teaching Jews about the truth? Isn't missionizing or the missionizing impulse a key part of religion? And aren't you thereby withholding salvation from Jews from your perspective? So there's several uh, aspects to the answer to that. The first, I think, is a problem within Christianity, uh, evangelical streams specifically, when winning souls, as it's called, would be the end-all, be-all, the highest goal of all things. I don't think that's right, even in Christian theology. It shouldn't be. So there are other higher priorities. For example, um, the kingdom of God, the final redemption, the honor of God. And a lot of times I see Jewish missions or evangelizing to Jews as a problem with that factor. You are often dishonoring the reputation of Jesus in what you're doing. And as well, like when it comes to working for the final redemption, supporting the Jewish people in Israel, I'd say that's a focus on the kingdom of God that can that is also higher than the impulse to evangelize. Now, there's also the other aspect of there's a hot debate in Christianity. It's not always on the map all the time, but there's a continual discussion of does the Jewish people, I'm not talking about maybe um, people who are living very secular lives and all sorts of debauchery, but faithful, God-honoring Jews, are they in some sort of special category in Christian theology? That comes plays a key role in the discussion about evangelism, missionizing, outreach. And that's still an ongoing theological discussion. Let me just follow up on that. So obviously your perspective is that the kingdom of God would take precedence over the saving of souls or trying to get Jews to believe in Jesus. But from a Jewish perspective, speaking on behalf of many people who are suspicious of Christian Zionists, how prevalent is your position as opposed to the other position? Are there many people who disagree with you who actually are interested in trying to make souls, to convert souls into Christianity? There certainly are missionary groups that would see that as the, as the highest, um, I would say, goal. I don't see it. I see that the kingdom of God, um, the final redemption, is the highest priority. Secondly, I think that Christianity in specific has lost its voice. We've got 2,000 years of us telling the Jewish people what we think, what our theology is, we're so great, you're so wrong, all the while having horrible atrocities committed against the Jewish people. I don't think we have a voice to speak on this issue. I really don't. I think it is culturally tone deaf. Now, that can't be a, a, you know, you can't live your life on just cultural sensitivity. And that's why I have larger theological concerns. But it's very practical. I really think Christians should shut up <laughs> about this. <laughs> Rabbi Willicke, you wanted to say something. John, you mentioned before uh, what Luther wrote. And I've quoted that quote from Luther before. I think I quoted it in, in a piece that I wrote in the Jerusalem Post a number of months back, where he said, "Let the Jew." He says it sarcastically. Luther writes, "Let the Jews rebuild their temple and be reconstituted in their land. We'll be the first to follow them and become Jews ourselves." He says it sarcastically, but if we take the sarcasm out of it for a minute and really just kind of drill down into the point that is made by that, any theological position that people take, apart from just reading a verse in the Bible. I mean, God communicates to us in the Bible, but theology is the endeavor of human beings trying to make sense of God, to make sense of all the things that he said, and to systematize it, and to understand it. That's what theology is. And 
an example of the work of theology is this statement by Luther. It's actually a very serious statement, because what a, what a theologian does is they look at the scripture, and they look at their belief system, and they also look at reality. And they say, okay, this is the world. So if the Jewish people are just forever, for centuries, for over a thousand years at that point, have just been, there's no chance in the world, based on the reality Luther's living in and looking at, there's no chance on earth. It's an absurdity that they're going to be reconstituted in their land and rebuild their, and, and become a kingdom again and rebuild their temple. And therefore, he can sarcastically say something because he can arrive at a theological conclusion that obviously the covenant with the people of Israel is no longer in force with these Jews. They're, it's no longer in force. That's a, that's a valid theological position for Luther to take, sarcasm aside, by looking at the reality that he's facing. I bring this up to basically ask a question, which is, our current reality is not the reality Luther lived. If Luther lived in our reality, there's a state of Israel with ingathered exiles that are more numerous and more prosperous than their ancestors, to quote Deuteronomy 30. So much of that has been fulfilled. There's also multitudes among the nations who stream to Jerusalem to seek God, as Zechariah prophesied. I mean, so much stuff is just, it just, it fits the playbook. If Luther lived today, he would never have made such a statement, obviously. So that leads me to the question, is there room in Christianity for a similar kind of assessment where we look at the reality around us and say, okay, certain theological principles that are inherited from from our ancestors and from the great thinkers of the past are simply no longer valid. Had those theologians looked at our reality, they would never have said that, and they would have come to different conclusions. How far can that go? Meaning, could it go even so far as viewing the people of Israel with their unique relationship to God as being on a separate track, even to the point of not needing Jesus? I don't think that what you're describing at the very end as the ultimate kind of destination of this as as being um, what's been called dual covenant theology. In other words, um, the Hebrew Bible is for the Jewish people, um, the New Testament is for Christian people, and never shall the twain meet. Is there some intermediate position that's possible? Within Christianity. I think I am in an intermediate position, I'd almost say. I am opposed, the more I, I study these types of things, I don't think that the covenant with that God made with the Jewish people at Sinai, with the Torah, has been abrogated. And that, it's continuing, it's still valid today, and that is what separates me, I think, a lot from a lot of other Christians, and which I educate them on very much. And we are still working out within theology what the special status of the Jewish people is in our thinking. That's still an ongoing work. However, I don't think you can remove such a central aspect from Christianity as who we believe the Messiah of everyone is. You can't excise that from it. When it comes to evangelism, missionizing, those type of things, yeah, there can be definitely major policy changes and they have changed. They really have. You know, I think you could bear witness to this yourself. How much missionizing has been done by Christian Zionist organizations really at all? I, you know, yeah, they got to be the worst. I often say to people like John Hagee has got to be the least effective missionary in the world, considering how many years he's had interaction with so many Jews and he hasn't converted a single one of them. That's the big question. I think that Jewish people are concerned about this, and I understand why they're concerned, is who is influencing whom, you know, really in these interactions. I think that a Orthodox Jewish person who meets a fervently Christian Protestant evangelical who loves Israel the Christian person is going to be the one that's fascinated and wanting to learn something from the Jewish person. You know, of all these millions of tourists that have been to Israel in record numbers over the past years, especially, you know, obviously before COVID-19, and all the ones that have gone and been baptized in the Jordan River, how many Jewish Israelis have ever gone down to the Jordan River and been baptized? Like, it doesn't happen. You know? (laughs) You know, know, let me just add... you just said that thing about the about which way the influence goes. And let me just say, this is what I do for a living. I interact with Christians. I speak in churches. I speak at Christian seminaries. And I'll, I'll add to that 
that the one in that interaction between the Orthodox Jew, and it doesn't, it's not just me because I'm a professional in this area, Orthodox Jews do not realize what a resource they themselves are because they live in their own bubble. When I speak to a Christian, it's not just that they're the one getting influenced more. They're the one who's going to start adjusting their theology as a result of the relationship. And I think what, what I would call for for the Jewish community is that we also need to have some adjustment in our perception of Christianity, in our theology of what, of our, of what Christianity is, based on the relationship as well. There aren't enough of those relationships the other way, but you know, it's not just that they're going to be influenced because they're going to hear a nice Jewish interpretation of a biblical verse. They're actually going to rethink the relationship in general. And this is very important. I think ultimately right now, if we're talking about the bleeding edge of what's happening, the shoe is on the other foot. In other words, there is an influx of very fervent Christian believers who are converting to become Orthodox Jews. Not that the the Jewish community is really actively proselytizing or anything like that, but it's starting to lean that direction. So as Christians, I think Jews are definitely influencing Christians a lot more than the other way around first of all. And second, um, we would appreciate if Jews are careful with how they handle that relationship now that the shoe is on the other foot. I'm not on board with, you know, Christians being influenced or outreached to leave Jesus, you know? And I think a lot of Jewish people are fine with that, but that is the reality really of how strong this degree is of mm. influence. Rabbi Willicke, I want to ask you about something you said earlier, which relates to what you just asked John right now. When you described your own understanding of eschatology and your own journey towards Jewish-Christian dialogue, you said that you have a greater and greater shared understanding of who God is. That's what your words were. And I wonder if that's really true. What I mean is that although there are some Christians who are not Trinitarians, it seems to me that the majority remain those who believe in a Trinitarian God, a God of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost— and that's very much not a Jewish understanding of God. And while the theology might be moving in a similar direction when it comes to understanding the role of the Jews within God's redemptive plan, that's not understanding who God is necessarily. That's understanding how God relates to the world. But in terms of pure theology, understanding the nature of God to the degree that humans can understand it, do you really think there's been a, a meeting of the minds of some sort? Because I'm not sure that's true. No, I don't think there's been a meeting of the minds. Um and yeah, if we get into these discussions of the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead according to Christianity, yes, we will see great divergence. Is the Trinity as believed today by, by evangelical Christians the same as a medieval understanding of the Trinity? No. I think it's safe to say that it's not the same. But I'm, now I'm going to say something that maybe John will be uncomfortable with, but it's from my own experience living in the, in, in the world that I live in, talking to a lot of my Christian friends, is that I believe that the vast majority of evangelical Christians, the ones that I've met, the ones that I talk to, they don't really live in a Trinitarian consciousness. They think a lot more about God. They equate Jesus with God talk about the Holy Spirit, but they talk about God. And if you'd say to them, if someone said something like, wow, God led me to the fall, you know, to, to come on this trip to Israel. And if I said to them, well, was it Jesus or was it the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit or was it uh, God the Father? Like, they don't even think that way, meaning they don't think in a Trinitarian manner. That's an important point. It's not a side point, because when we're talking from a Jewish perspective, what do Christians believe if you ask your average Christian to explain the Trinity, that's also, you know, they probably can't. And my point is that there's this kind of, it's almost a level of lip service to the faith in the Trinity. They believe in the Trinity. If you try to drill down into what that actually means, it's hard to pinpoint a real Trinitarian thinking. More to the halachic point, according to most halachic authorities, even though the Rambam is the most famous and he's very harsh on the Trinity, according to most halachic authorities, if you look at modern poskim, like Reb Chaim David HaLevi has a very long tshuva in, in Asela Harav, and there are others, the normative position is that Christianity is shituf, 
which means that it's not a violation of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach from a Jewish perspective. And that's very important. And what that means, if the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach describe our goal for the values and belief system of the nations of the world, and Christians believe in the God of Breshit, Shmot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Dvarim, Yeshai, Yecheskel, Malachi, if Christians believe in that God, they believe in in those prophecies, they believe in those words, they are believing in the same God as us. They also believe some things about him that we don't believe. They do. But it's things they're believing about our God. That's the way I understand it. And I think that's just an accurate statement on its face. I think it's axiomatically accurate. The things that they believe that we don't believe about Hashem are things they're believing about the God of the Bible. So when I say that a shared idea of who God is it's also in terms of how God acts in the world. God reveals himself in two ways. He reveals himself through scripture, prophecy, and he reveals himself through history. In terms of who God is and how he revealed himself in Tanakh and how he reveals himself in history, yes, we have a shared view of who God is. So, John, is there anything there that Rabbi Willicki said that you take issue with? Well, sure, I could take issue with, you know, obviously, like like he said, you know, that's his perspective on a Christian uh, view of the Trinity. And yes, in practical ways, among common folk, that, that, that could be true to a certain extent, but Christians are not going to leave the Trinity. Yes, there is a Unitarian stream of, of, of Christianity that is largely completely rejected as heretical, even though Christians do appreciate, you know, like some of the Christian founders of America who may have been Unitarian and so on. Well, there's also but, there's also the oneness movement in Pentecostalism, which is also non-Trinitarian. That's true, but it's even more extreme in another way. Okay, <laughs> in other words, like, Jesus is, he's the only one who's Hashem. I think that this is something that that, that Judaism has to and, and does work out, just like I, I was really impressed with Rabbi Veliki, the way he was describing it in the halachic sources of whether, you know, are Christians idolaters or not. And from my understanding of what he's written about the halachic material, no, we don't fall in that category. Something like that, roughly speaking. But there has been some meaning of the minds, I think, when it comes to um, a, a thinker that's really popular among Christian theologians, which is... Michael, I don't know exactly how to say his last name, Wishagrod? Wishagrod. Michael Wishagrod. Wishagrod, who was saying that, you know, Christianity has to deal with its view of Judaism. And I think we're doing that full force, at least for my part. And I'm, I'm trying to educate as many people as possible when it comes to that. I love Judaism. I really do. We should say more and more Christian academics are writing on these topics as well. I mean, it, it, it really, it's not yeah. just John Anderson. This is an exploding... <laughs> Uh, area of scholarship. Exactly. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, when it comes to Michael Wushagrod, he says, and then he turns to fellow Jews and says, we should not reject a Christian, you know, perspectives on God, just a priori, de facto. It's as if they were completely contrary to the Hebrew Bible and to the Torah. It could be, you know, basically what he's saying is, Perhaps Jews should completely reject this perspective, but it's not completely unreasonable to read the Bible and come up with that conclusion, is what his point is. And so I think there has been some, you know, uh, work across the platforms. And he takes an alternative approach to what I understand is Rabbi Soloveitchik's position on interaction between Jews and Christians. Then I want to ask about that exact point. I'll first address it to Rabbi Wilicki, then I want to ask you, John, a different question about it. Rabbi Wilicki, how do you deal with Rav Soloveitchik's approach, most obviously expressed in the essay Confrontation from the early 60s, which he wrote specifically in response to Vatican II, where Rav Soloveitchik forbade theological dialogue with Christians? He did say in other matters, Jews and Christians can talk. And he also, it should be noted, originally gave his later essay, The Lonely Man of Faith, in front of a Christian seminary in Brighton, Massachusetts. So even Rav Soloveitchik, how much that was a practical concern for him or what he meant by theological dialogue is itself open to question. At the same time, I'm sure many Orthodox Jews, specifically in the religious Zionist world and the modern Orthodox world, would point to Rav Soloveitchik as the greatest scholar of our world, at least arguably. And he said, you're not allowed to do perhaps what you're doing right now. What would you tell them? Well, for starters, the context in which he wrote what he wrote is very important. It, it's not just very important. It's, he was writing about a particular context. He was writing in response to Vatican II, 
which uh, at that point the Catholic Church in the United States was reaching out to rabbinic organizations uh, to engage in all kinds of uh, uh, dialogue. There was a famous uh, event where they invited the Synagogue Council in New York and uh, some leading rabbis, not just Rav Soloveitchik, but Rav Moshe Feinstein, were, were setting parameters or, or completely opposed to these meetings. And the, there was a question of the motives behind it and whose turf it was on. Uh, in in Rav Moshe Feinstein's response, um, where he forbids attendance at that event, he even talks about the fact that it was initiated by the Catholic Church and is controlled by the Catholic Church. You know, so when I look at the context and what he was, from a public policy standpoint, what he was trying to protect against, I don't see that it has any relationship to the type of, of dialogue that I'm, that I'm involved in, meaning that I don't see Rav Soloveitchik's ruling as a kind of, as a line in the Shulchan Aruch. I don't think that I'm obligated to see it that way. Let you see just, it as historically conditioned, in other words. Well, yes. Well, I'll also just, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a source back at you, which I think is more important and more normative, which is... The Rambam, who is, you know, those who are opposed to the type of work that I do and see Christianity as pure idolatry love to wave the flag of the Rambam. Unfortunately, I'm going to be so bold as to say most of the time they don't know what the Rambam says about Christianity nearly as well as as well as people who, who really are scholars of the Rambam. And for me, myself, and the work that I do, they don't know all the sources that I know about what the Rambam says about Christianity. The Rambam says a lot of complicated things about Christianity. There's a lot of subtlety in it. One of the things that the Rambam wrote is a responsum, a tshuva, where he was asked about the permissibility of teaching Torah to non-Jews, because it says, of course, famously in the Talmud that we're not allowed to teach Torah to non-Jews, and the person asks, is this prohibition from Talmudic times still in force today? And his answer, and it's very counterintuitive to a lot of people, and when I speak to Jewish audiences, when I speak in synagogues about my work, I open my talk with this responsum, just to get everyone going. The Rambam's response is as follows. He says, it is permissible to teach Torah to Christians, but not to Muslims. Now, what's so counterintuitive about it to most Jews is that the Rambam famously rules that Islam is not idolatry and that Christianity is. So wait, I'm not allowed to teach the non-idolaters Torah, but I'm allowed to teach the idolaters Torah? And the answer really is that it has nothing to do with that. The technical definition of idolatry, which leads the Rambam to believe that Christianity is and Islam isn't, is irrelevant to the teaching of Torah. The Rambam says that it is permissible, and he basically says it's a good thing to do, because perhaps, this is what very interesting language, I, I don't have it in front of me now, I didn't know you were going to ask me this, but perhaps they will be drawn closer to our way of seeing things. Now, why does the Rambam even care about that? But he rules that you could teach Torah to Christians, and the justification for it is that they have a belief in the exact same scriptures as we have, and therefore that shared, that shared respect for our scriptures will give them an inherent respect for our interpretation of those scriptures. And the Rambam says it's totally fine to do it. So when people say to me, how can you teach Torah to Christians? I don't know. I... I you could bring up Rav Soloveitchik to me, and he's someone who lived in the last century who said something in a certain context, but I have halachic authority of the Rambam telling me that teaching Torah to Christians is fine and describing the type of... What the Rambam describes in, in that you're teaching, the, you're teaching Torah to Christians and maybe they're going to hear your interpretation and they'll like it and it'll draw, it'll draw them closer to our way of seeing things, that kind of describes my experience a lot better than Rav Soloveitchik talking about synagogue council meetings between you know, Catholic bishops and rabbis discussing public policy. When I go into a church, I don't speak about Israel. I don't give political talks. I don't talk about Christian Zionism. I'll teach a psalm. We'll do a Bible study session. And it goes back to what John opened with talking about his own experience, talking about the Jewish perspective of the Bible. I'll just, I'll, I'll have a PowerPoint that goes through a certain parak of Tehillim, and we're going to go pasuk by pasuk, and I'm going to share different insights based on the Hebrew. It's not about I'm a Jew and you're a Christian. It's about you believe in the Bible, I believe in the Bible. We're going to study the Word of God together. That's what it's about. And, you know, so to me, I'm, I'm kind of fulfilling what the Rambam describes there, and without doing a whole lecture on the Rambam's position on Christianity, I think what's described in some other sources in the Rambam about Christianity as well. 
that brings out really a nice perspective because I think Christians are a bit confused when they say like, you know, Judaism is able to kind of hold us Christians at arm's length, but then say, you know, like we have the same God as Islam. A lot of Christian friends that I know, this is divided in the Christian community, but especially among evangelicals, they would say, listen, the Bible defines God. And since we don't share the Bible with the Muslims, as we do with the Jews, therefore we have the same God as the Jewish people do, but somehow the Jewish people see that, that they have the same God as the Muslims do, so we have like this strange three-way... Well, you know where that would come from, John. That might be very much that your understanding of the Hebrew Bible is conditioned by the existence of what we would call a sequel. And because of that, our understanding of God remains basically what's encapsulated in the Hebrew Bible, but yours then has a qualification afterwards. I fully understand that. The position that John is, is presenting is actually the position of Michael Wishagrod, the great Orthodox Jewish thinker, that he actually, in his book, uh, Body of Faith, in one of the opening chapters, he actually speaks pretty critically about the fact that the Maimonidean perspective on who God is has taken Judaism, he, he says it's not me, he, he says it's taken Judaism away from the biblical. And, you know, and it's turned it into an abstraction. Yes, so at an abstract level of who the, you know, if we're defining God as this kind of philosophically arrived at conclusion about what the Godhead looks like, then Judaism and Islam maybe have a more similar God. But Wishagrod argues that's very nice, but we're a biblical religion. We're scriptural. We're based on a text. And if you look at the text, if the Muslims reject the authenticity of our text and Christians accept the authenticity of our text, yes, our point of departure with Christianity uh, begins after Malachi, you know, where the New Testament takes over. Fine, we have a point of departure. But our point of departure with Islam on the definition of God, you know, comes even before Bereshit bara. Yeah, and I and I do understand, of course, why Judaism looks at it that way. It's just, it's a little ironic sometimes from a Christian perspective to see this thing. And I, I was so appreciating what Rabbi Uliku was saying, explaining the nuances uh, between that relationship. We're almost out of time, but John, I want to ask you, based on what we said earlier, you mentioned how the shoe is on the other foot in some ways. Looking at it from that perspective— if you wanted Jews to understand something about Christianity or about Christian Zionism or about your general perspective, and you wanted them to hear you out, what would you want them to hear? What would you tell them? I would want to tell them this, that there are a lot, you know, Christianity is by far the world's largest religion, um, just statistically, and there's a lot of variety out there. But Christians who love Israel is going to be about 500 million or so. And there's a lot of variety there as well, and people are on a journey. But people who actually work with this, Christian Zionist organizations, are, at least as far as I am aware of, and I work with this all the time, not going to be a proselytizing threat to the Jewish community. Um, I can honestly say that. That's, that's not their goal. Um, of course, intellectually, you know, I have my belief on who is the Messiah. I could read some article in Aish or Arutz Sheva where they celebrate a Christian who leaves his perspective on Jesus and, you know, more towards a mainstream Jew Judaism perspective. We both have that, but we're willing to put that aside to work on common goals. That's what Christian Zionism a lot of times is. And I would say even those evangelical Christians who are not so nuanced in their theology, who love Israel... If they do happen to share the best thing that they know, which is Jesus with you, I've heard Alan Dershowitz say this, you know, just take it as a compliment. They mean it as a compliment. Um, you should feel confident in your faith, you know, what you're looking at. But they really, they do mean well. And I understand why Jews don't feel that it's meant well or received well. I really do understand that. I would say this practically, though, if you think about real politic. The Catholic Church has done a lot when it comes to its theology on Judaism and has a lot of nuanced and amazing work with Jewish-Christian relations, which I appreciate, even. But when it comes to politically, they could be some of the strongest opponents to the modern state of Israel and Zionism. Whereas Christian Zionists and Evangelicals and Protestants 
um, who love Israel, not all of them do, but most, many, many do, they may not have the most nuanced theology on all these minutiae, but they are by and large willing to, to lay down their lives even to, either to protect the Jewish people or the state of Israel. So, you know, one is in theory, one is in practice, I would almost say. And I would add to that, that the Catholic Church, who has really boldly changed their theology and said some things that even a lot of Christian Zionists would be uncomfortable with about the role of the Jewish people theologically, have done a very poor job in getting that down to the masses. The average Catholic in the pews knows nothing of those theological changes, and it doesn't, it hasn't altered their view of Christianity at all. Whereas in the evangelical world of Christian Zionism, you see something which is actually the opposite, where your average evangelical pro-Israel Christian in the pews is much less bothered by the theological issues that arise from this embrace of the Jewish people and rejection of replacement theology, etc., is much less bothered by it than their pastor, probably. And it's really the masses who are much more engaged with Christian Zionism, uh, you know, despite the fact that they're, you know, that at the very top levels, if you go into Christian academia, you'll actually see less inclination towards Christian Zionism than in the churches. Very much so. Rabbi Wilicki, just as a final word before we close, what would you tell Jews in Israel and abroad who are afraid and suspicious of Christian Zionists? We heard what John said. What would your last word be to those Jews who say their support is great, but I'm not willing to take the potential consequences of such support? I'll say that we are currently, the Jewish people currently, in the strongest position we've been in in thousands of years. If I'm talking to someone who is not a Zionist and is not a a Bible-believing Jew, then I really don't have anything to say to them. I don't know what to say. But if I'm talking to a Jew who believes that Medinat Yisrael is Rishit Smichat Gulatenu, that this is the beginning of the redemptive process, then let's remind ourselves that Judaism's goal is not the first paragraph of Aleinu. It's not we're better, you know, that we're supposed to praise God for being different, and, and that's the end of the story. There's a second paragraph of Aleinu, Al-Kain. Therefore, the purpose of our particularism is a universal goal of everyone coming together to serve God together. It's all over Tanakh, it's all over our davening, and that's what Judaism's really about, to fulfill the mission of being a kingdom of priests. Who's the flock if we're the priests? It's the world. There's a universal side to Judaism which does not at all mitigate our particularism. And although that is a major paradigm shift, we have to open our eyes to the fact that it's part of the historical process we're in. And although we're just at the beginning of it, Christian Zionism and the theological working things out that's involved in the Christian Zionist community is the beginning. Just like Medina Israel is the first flowering of the redemption of our people, Christian Zionism is the first flowering of the redemption of the world and bringing them into this story. And therefore, our best course of action, Christian Zionism exists. Let's, let's go bottom line. What would I say to Jews? Christian Zionism exists. No opposition that you might have to it is going to change the fact that it exists. So what is the best course of action? Is the best course of action to let it exist on its own in its own vacuum and reach whatever conclusions they reach? Or is the best course of action for us to build a relationship with them, for people like myself and many other colleagues to be involved with them, to engage with them, and to be part of that process? Of course, I think it's obvious that the second approach is the right approach. So are you afraid of being missionized? If you give your kids a good Jewish education, they are not at risk whatsoever. I know I said I was going to end. There's one question, though, when you say being afraid of of Christians missionizing. I have to ask John one final question, if you don't mind. What's your opinion about people in the Jewish community who are counter-missionaries? Do you support what they do? Do you think what what they're doing is a disservice? What's your feeling about those people who are fighting actively against Christian missionaries? I completely understand why they're there. I have to be very clear that me as, uh, you know, I'm more progressed theologically on these issues than a lot of mainstream Christians. But for me, Jewish identity is sacred. So I don't appreciate, you know, a Christian message that's going to get Jewish people to be lost to 
the Jewish identity and to Jewish people as a whole. I really don't. I think it's it's wrong biblically. And so, and and I understand, you know, that the Christian message has been a real threat to Jewish people, and so anti-missionaries want to protect that. So they're saying, look, your message results and equals in Jews are gone from the Jewish people. That's that has been true. So I understand why they're there. I understand what they're trying to accomplish. Um, some of them, however, have started to get really zealous, and I think are willing to use more bombastic and disingenuous tactics than others to demonize the opposition or or things like that. So I understand that, um, and, and I don't like that. I I really don't. I don't appreciate that. I do, when it comes to sharpening my own faith, I enjoy reading anti-missionary works and saying, look, you know, I think this critique of Christianity is actually legitimate. <laughs> or or there, well, you know, there's an explanation for that. And, uh, you know, I don't agree with you there. I can sharpen my own faith. I am concerned, though, that a lot of people, and this is, this is Christianity's problem. We need to educate our people to say, look, you're going to come a lot uh, on perhaps Christian anti-missionary material that says Christianity is completely wrong and this and this and this point. And I would say that there's plenty of good answers, and I need to educate my people on that. Okay, well, John Anderson, Rabbi Pesach Wolicki, thank you very much. This is very enlightening. I'm sure the listeners are really enjoying this conversation, the back and forth, and have learned a lot about both of your positions as well as what Christian Zionism is, and I really appreciate you joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you. Please visit the Jewish Coffee House website at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You'll find some terrific podcasts there, along with my blog, and the opportunity to support Jewish Coffee House on Patreon, where you can get bonus podcasts like Ask the Rabbis, merch, and more. Follow me on Twitter. My handle is at JewishCoffeeH, and like the Jewish Coffee House Facebook page. See you next time. I'm Scott Kahn on the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. <laughs>